If you've ever given a speech, given a lecture, written an article or a term paper, you probably know the challenges when you move from one theme, one topic, one idea to the next. There is this art in trying to keep the audience engaged as well as connecting what was before to what will follow. Now, we've entered into a place in the Sermon on the Mount where there is that kind of transition going on. In the first section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been talking about who are a part of the kingdom, what are the characteristics, qualities of those particular people. And now he shifts to talking about how we live our lives as kingdom people. It says about the law of the kingdom, the way of living for those in the kingdom. And as Jesus makes this transition, he is a true artist because he employs this technique that causes people to ask, what did he just say? It is kind of a showstopper. It is this gas for What's this all about? What's he saying? And he does that through two statements. He says, don't think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And then he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter in the kingdom. Now, when Jesus was speaking about the law, he was talking about this body of work that's found in our Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In those works, there are some 613 various laws that govern the lives of the Hebrew children, their civic life, their religious life, and their moral life. And so Jesus was talking about that Old Testament law. He wasn't attempting, he says here, to, um, to, to identify which was most important, but he came to fulfill the law. Now, when he used this word prophet, he was talking about those collected writings of the prophetic works of folks that folks in his audience and folks today in this audience consider to be sacred and inspired. Jesus was not saying those works are antiquated, they're difficult to understand, and sometimes rather harsh. But he said he came to fulfill the prophets. Jesus said, I have come not to abolish the law, not to toss it away, but to fulfill it. But what did he mean by that when he said those words? Did he mean that in some way there was like this debt that was owed, and by his life and actions... He would pay that debt in full so that everybody else could be released from this body of 613 laws and regulations? That hardly seems to be the case here. Did he mean that uh, he was going to provide for folks the exact meaning of these laws so that you know exactly what each law meant and how you were to apply it in everyday life? Again, it doesn't seem to be what he was talking about. It seems that Jesus' fulfillment was more focused on taking people into what was at the heart of the law and at the heart of the prophets. He wanted people to understand the law, its meaning and its intent. He wanted people to know how in the kingdom of God they could live out what God desired for them to do. And this then is where Jesus makes this 
statement that would have caused everybody in his original audience to gasp. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, that statement may not seem like much to us, but it would be like me saying this morning, unless your righteousness exceeds that of Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, you ain't going to heaven. You would think, man, there's not any hope for any of us gathered here in this place. In that case, you see, the scribes were those folks who made it their lives to study what we call the Old Testament, to figure out what it was talking about and how those words, thoughts, and ideas applied to people's lives. The Pharisees were a re very religious group of people who, who really in everything they did, they tried to live out what the Old Testament law was all about. They were very strict in their practices. As a matter of fact, one of their practices was tithing, giving a tenth of their resources, of, 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 of the, the, how they prospered in their lives. <laughs> they would even tithe the deal, D-I-L-L. -L, you know that stuff that goes in deal pickles? They would even tithe a tenth of their deal. They would weigh out that weed from their garden and they would give a tenth of the deal to God. For the audience to think our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Your righteousness has to exceed that of Billy Graham and Mother Teresa? I mean, this was shocking stuff. But Jesus wanted to take people beyond the particulars of the outward appearances of the law and statements of the prophets. He wanted them to move deeper into what the law and the prophets were about. He wanted their actions as kingdom people to spring forth from that which was deep within. So in order to demonstrate this, Jesus turned to two Old Testament laws, two subjects that the people then and the people now have an idea of what they're about. Murder and adultery. Now, murder is the willful, intentional act of taking another person's life outside of war or self-defense. I would venture to say that all of us gathered here this morning consider murder to be a heinous act that is at the top of moral offenses. Do you, can you agree with that? Just shake your head. I mean, it's, it's up there at the top, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the worst things. Uh, when it comes to the commandment, one of the ten, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. Uh, probably none of us have violated that. We can put a check mark beside of that box of the commandment. Not violated that one, right? I've not intentionally taken the life of another person. Not guilty. But then, Jesus says something that causes even the most religious among us to probably squirm a bit. It does me. He said, whoever is angry with a brother or sister is also guilty. Matter of fact, if you call them names, you're at risk of being judged and condemned. Oh, my. That's not very comfortable, is it? I've been mad 
at other people. I've done my share of name-calling as well. Not always where they can hear it, but I've called them some names. In the New Testament, there are two Greek words that are used to translate the word, translate as anger. One has more to do with the emotional reaction that we have when we are upset, when we feel there's been some kind of injustice done where someone we love or ourselves have been harmed by another. It's that emotional response. And the second word that's used for anger is a word that is when one is angry and that person seeks revenge or to punish the other person. It's that second word that Jesus is using here in this context. Now understand this. Anger is a normal human emotion. Anger is a normal human emotion. All human beings get angry. It is a gift from God. But when that anger lingers and turns to bitterness, or that anger produces in us this effort to get even with or to punish the other, it, stepped in, it steps into a whole different dimension. It crosses the line that Jesus is talking about here. When anger is unleashed from our heart that causes us to think harmful thoughts or to do things designed to hurt the other person, we've crossed over the line into this spiritual act of murder that Jesus is describing here. Sadly to say, I've been there. I've done that. I feel guilty about it now. Now, there's one thing I can say about the Sermon on the Mount that I believe is true. What we find in this new section that we're entering into in the sermon, Jesus did not intend to express it so that any of us or any of the original audience or anybody through the ages would feel guilt or guilty because of violating what he's talking about. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is intended for something different. The Sermon on the Mount is intended for people to experience the blessedness of the kingdom. That's the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And that word blessed means that, to be happy. Jesus wants his people, those living in the kingdom, to experience the blessedness, the happiness of the kingdom. Not to feel guilty about failure or messing up in our lives. His words here... And what will follow the next several weeks that we'll look at are intended to take us deeper into what kingdom living is about. To help us to see that living as God wants us to live is something that is to, to swell up deep within us that is expressed in what we think, what we say, and what we do. And at the heart of kingdom living is about relationships, our relationship with our sisters and brothers, those who at times may cause us to experience and feel anger 
but to help us understand that these relationships are much deeper. The second commandment that Jesus highlights here is that of adultery. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Adultery is having sexual relationships with a person other than one's spouse. And we know that adultery is an act that violates the commitment and covenant that one has to his or her spouse. And again, I would venture to say that all gathered in this room consider adultery to be wrong. Now, we live today in a sex-charged society. Many live and die for sex, and it literally drives people's lives. We are routinely exposed to sexually charged messages and images from ads for toothpaste to automobiles. Our television programs, our movies, our online searches, our novels are laced with sexual expressions that sometimes tempt us and other times want to make us feel compassion for folks who step across lines, particularly in the area of adultery, when they are with the person they love. James Bryan Smith says that in our culture, the dominant false narrative in this area is this, all sexual desire is good. And oftentimes people feel that all sexual expression is good. But if you've ever, as a spouse, have had your spouse to be unfaithful to you, or if you have a friend or a family member whose spouse was unfaithful to them, you know how harmful and painful adultery is. God gave us a beautiful gift of sexual desire, but intended for us to guard it and express and protect it from the covenant, the faithful covenant between a husband and a wife. Now, fortunately, most of us, maybe none in this place, have ever committed adultery. But then Jesus once again takes us to that uncomfortable place. He says, whoever looks with lust on another person has committed adultery in the heart. So what's lust? Now, know this. Lust is not seeing beauty or feeling a momentary attraction or even having a, a stray thought or brief thought about another. But lust is the desire to be with another other than one's spouse, and playing out that fantasy in the heart and in the mind. It's about coveting the other person to be with them. Now, lust is nearly always something that precedes sexual promiscuity. But lust doesn't always lead to physical acts. But Jesus says that even if that act is just in the mind, we stepped across the line. Temptations abound in our culture for men and women. It's clever in how these things come to us. And once again, this gives us a sense of heaviness as we think about what Jesus is saying. But remember, His purpose isn't to make us feel guilty. His purpose is to lead us into what it means to live out the kingdom. So how do we do that? 
Uh, when my three sons uh, were in school, uh, Patty and myself had an exercise that we did with them each morning before they left for school. We would gather and we would have prayer together. Now with three boys, it wasn't always the most religious thing that would happen as you're trying to corral those, uh, those, those boy tomcats, you know, before they left for school. But many mornings, I would say these words to my boys before we walked out the door. I, say, I would say after we prayed, remember who and whose you are. Remember who and whose you are. Now, I wasn't talking about them being a preacher's kid or a teacher's kid. I wasn't talking about that because everybody knows how preachers and teacher's kids are. But I was trying to remind them that they are children of God. When you know who and whose you are, it makes a difference in how you think and what you do. This idea underpins kingdom living. You see, citizens of the kingdom are people who are poor in spirit, meek, pure in heart, merciful, and peacemakers. These are qualities of being. These are not things that a person inspires to. You don't aspire to being meek. You don't practice and become, quote, pure in heart. These are who the kingdom people are. So, what happens when a person who is merciful becomes angry? How do peacemakers deal with anger? Something within leads these people who are merciful and peacemakers to think differently towards someone else when they are offended. They give the offender the benefit of the doubt. Merciful people, peacemakers, are people who forgive other people. Something other than demanding their rights and expressing their anger drives citizens of the kingdom. How about lust for those who are pure in heart? When the heart is pure, the person with the pure heart doesn't allow the seductive desires or random thoughts to linger. They turn to things that are more helpful and beneficial in their thinking. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness turn to a higher driving force than sexual satisfaction. Then how about the meat? Remember, the meek are those who have strength that's under control. There is an internal strength for the meek that they are not overwhelmed by anger or by lust or other things that Jesus will mention in the Sermon on the Mount. They live self-controlled lives. And we have to understand, and I've said this many times, and, and you'll hear Jacqueline and me talking about it several times as we continue this Sermon on the Mount. These things we're talking about here, these qualities, these characteristics are not achieved by self-effort or by an act of your will or my will. 
These are qualities that sprout and grow in citizens of, the, of God's kingdom. Like the fruit of the Spirit, they are spiritually produced in the faithful. So our response isn't, how can I defeat my anger? How can I defeat my lust? But it's to ask, am I a part of the kingdom of God? And am I living fully in relationship with Jesus within that domain so that what God wants in me is being produced naturally out of that relationship with Jesus? Am I a part of the kingdom? Today we have opportunity to not only enter the kingdom, but to live in that kingdom and become the very people that God created us to be. Sisters and brothers, remember who and whose you are. Remember what God is trying to produce in you. Live fully now into that kingdom and in relationship with Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for kingdom living, and we thank you for these beautiful and wonderful words of Jesus. Help us now, Lord, to experience the blessedness and happiness of your kingdom. Help us to live out the life by being the people that you've created us to be. Lord, do your work in our hearts and lives. Deliver us from those things that have kept us captive. And Lord, free us now to live as you want us to live. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.